Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Um, today's episode, I'm speaking with the marvellous Karen Galley. Now, Karen is currently the Vice President and General Counsel at Otsuka Pharmaceutical, and she's had that position for the last 18 years. Before that time, she spent her early years at the training ground for her was at a law firm, Epstein, Becker and Green. And it's a fantastic discussion. Karen takes us through her journey. Uh, her priorities, what she learned in private practice and how that translated into in-house and her priorities over the time and how she developed the legal department at Otsuka. So it's a, it's a fascinating discussion, another example of an incredibly successful general counsel. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax and enjoy the episode. Hello, Karen Galley. Welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm super excited about the discussion we're about to have. Well, thanks for having me, Jim. I'm excited too. Fantastic. Now, Karen, of course, you're the Vice President and General Counsel of Otsuka Pharmaceutical, have been for a few years now, but you haven't always been the VP and GC. Take us back right to the early days. What got you interested in law in the first place, and, and maybe a little bit about some pivotal moments for you early on in your career or your thinking about what you're going to do in your life. Take us back. Sure. Yeah. Well, my undergrad major was English. I went to a liberal arts school. So, you know, that wasn't really determinative of you know, what I was going to do, but kind of always had in the back of my mind that I'd go to law school and be a lawyer. But I did take some time between undergrad and law school to sort of make sure that that was the career path that I wanted. Dabbled in corporate communications and public policy and then went to law school. But the, the benefit of taking that time off was I worked in healthcare, And so that got me interested in health law. And I specifically chose my law school because they had a strong health law program and have stayed in health law ever since then. Fantastic. Okay. And then so went to law school after that. What, what was the first job after law school? I was an associate at a law firm in D.C. at Epstein, Becker & Green. They had a national health law practice. Uh, I spent seven years there and then decided, you know, it was the I was at the start of the three-year run-up to partner, and I had actually lived through 9-11. 9-11 happened. I was on maternity leave, so I was watching TV all the time and experienced everything with that. And then we had the D.C. sniper, and so I just felt that the demands of a law firm career with small children – in a commute in the D.C. area, which is heavily congested, that I wanted to look for opportunities closer to home. So I ended up finding Otsuka. I am in the Rockville, Maryland office, but we also have another office in Princeton, New Jersey, where I spend a lot of time too. But yeah, so I've been here 18 years. And as you said, I haven't been D.C. the whole time. I moved up, regularly promoted, but actually, you know, it's the quality of life that kept me here. All right. So, so back to the law firm days, tell me a little bit about the learnings, how perhaps what you might do differently now if you'd had your time there again and how well it prepared you for the move in-house. Well, let's start with how well it prepared me. I think it, it prepared me really well. I think spending those years surrounded by lawyers, you really you are exposed to a lot of different styles of lawyering, a lot of different styles of client engagement, you know, I was lucky to work with a lot of national health law companies or health companies, excuse me. And I learned that 
you know, I'm not going to know every answer. I need to be able to find the people who have the answer or find the resource where the answer is located. And then what would I do differently? You know, I don't know. I really enjoyed my time there. I don't know that I would do anything differently. I think that it was, you know, a really good experience and really prepared me well for in-house where you're, where you're not surrounded by as many lawyers. You don't have as many people to bounce things off of. Yeah. And you talked there about not necessarily knowing all the answers, but knowing where to go to get those answers. And no doubt when you move in-house, that skill is even more important because you're certainly not going to know all the answers. And the comfort actually being comfortable not knowing all the answers. That's, that, that's a theme that I hear quite a lot speaking to general counsel, this um, uh, kind of instinctive reaction or instinctive feeling that you need to know and you should know all the answers. But then as you probably progress a bit in your career, you get more comfortable with your, yourself being comfortable. So, well, I'm, I don't know, but I know how to get the answer. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a lot of, that's a lot of what I look for in people that I work with here is to, to hire people who are comfortable with ambiguity. You know, if you want regularity, you want predictability, this is not the job for you. This is not the company for you. So tell me about the early days then when you joined, I think it was back in 2003. What was life like for you there? What kind of challenges did you have at that time? And then I'd like to hear you talk about how does that change from the kind or how's that changed from the kind of challenges you might have today? Well, when I started, I was hired to support one of our brands. We had a, we had a brand that we were co-promoting with another pharmaceutical company and to really step in and learn that space and be, you know, jack of all trades for that brand. And so that was interesting because I not only had to learn how Otsuka did things and what, what our risk tolerance was and our procedures and so forth, but we have an alliance company. So we had to navigate through that with that other company. So there was a lot of you know, you're in a marriage and you have a partner and you have to make compromises and find a way together. So I think that was one of the sort of the big learnings when I got here is that, you know, it's, it's, and also, you know, the internal, you know, we're a Japanese company, we're ultimately a Japanese company, we have a lot of consensus driven decision making, you know, there's just knowing when who's got the D and who's who are the important stakeholders that need to be consulted. And so that was, I think, one of the, the big early challenges. And tell me, so getting promotions, getting through to the, the, the VP and GC position, anything that you would call out about why it was, let's say, you who managed to navigate your way through and, and get those promotions, anything anything about your skill sets, the kind of things that you were focused on, which stood out from, let's say, you know, other candidates that might have been going for that position or you know, might have been progressing their careers in a similar way? Well, I think I was able to have, because I've been here so long and we were, we're very lean and we've been lean. I've been, I've worked in every area of the company. So, you know, I know what I call the meat and potatoes of our business. I know that we, you know, the important things that we do are we develop compounds and we commercialize branded products. So working in those two spaces, I really know what the drivers are and the levers are for the important business that we're in. Why me personally? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not easily excitable. I don't, you know, not, the sky is not always falling. I have worked with people who are like that. You know, I try to be very reasonable and take appropriate risks and be collaborative and not be the department of no. I like that the sky is not always falling. And having kind of that kind of perspective, and I, was, I used to say to my kids, and I still do actually, while everyone else around you is losing their head, make sure you're keeping yours. Because there is something about being able to be, you know, really measured and cool and calm in the face of 
what might appear to be a crisis at the time, but usually at the end, if you've got a good perspective, usually it's never as like anything, never as good as it seems to be, never as bad as as you think it is at the time. Is this does that, does any of that resonate with you? Exactly. Yeah, I think as long as you show patience and you let things evolve and you you know you speak to people, you get the the different aspects of what's happened and and different inputs. You know, you you can see how things evolve to what you're dealing with current day and, and find a path forward. Does that, how does that translate? Talk to, talk to me about hiring and, and talent and people development. What, what do you look for, Karen, when you're hiring into your team and what are the kind of things that you look to do to de- help develop the talent in your teams? I'd be interested in that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely want people with the technical skills, uh, you know, that, that has to check out. But really as equally or more important are behavioral skills, traits, you know, that, that would fit in. You know, I, I'm looking for people who are good ambassadors for legal affairs, who are out in the company. You know, you spend your day with more with cl- internal business clients than you do with people in your own department. So I want people who can interact with those business clients and speak in terms that they understand and convey the legal concepts, you know, for them to be able to understand it and work collaboratively. So you know, I'm looking for people who are adaptable, curious, as I said, able to deal with ambiguity, you know, but also there's sort of this intangible skill of knowing when to escalate and come back and check with other lawyers and and see how things are done and not just, you need to know what you don't know. And those relationship building skills, always important, like particularly important as an in-house attorney where there are so many stakeholders and you have to develop an ability to communicate in a way which which is easily understood, I suppose, by those stakeholders because they come from different skill sets, different backgrounds, whatever it might be. They're not typically attorneys if they're leading a business function. That ability to communicate with others around you in a way which which they understand, which is clear, concise, is that something too, which it sounds like that's something that you look out for too? Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we, I, we work with scientists, we work with engineers, no, and so they're, the way that they absorb information is different than lawyers and salespeople, right? We, we, you know, one of our greatest, you know, num- sheer number of employees is salespeople. So, you know, we have to be able to communicate with them in terms that they will understand and absorb. The salesperson has a very kind of, I was going to say unique, certainly it's, it's different from a scientist, it's different from a lawyer, <laughs> That's different from a technical person. <laughs> Definitely different from lawyers. Sometimes I go to our sales meeting. If I have a new employee and we go to a sales meeting pre-COVID, of course, you know, I would say this is proof that salespeople and lawyers are genetically different from beings. Because if we had this many lawyers in a room, this is not the meeting we would be having with the lights and the music. And, and it's great. They love it. They're, they're competitive with each other. And they, they are extremely valuable to the company. We, we do not, you know, we would not have a paycheck if not for our salespeople. Well, the old adage, Karen, sales makes the world go round. <laughs> in any business, if you can't sell, the business doesn't survive. So I've read you're obviously passionate around, around D-E-N-I. Tell me about that organisation in your team. What are the kind of things that you look out for? What are some of the initiatives that you work on to promote D-E-N-I? Well, we're doing several things. One of the ones that I'm most proud of is that we were recognised by our local chapter of the ACC, the Association of Corporate Counsel, for our Diversity Accelerator Sukunit program. So earlier this year, we needed help. We needed more hands. I didn't have the ability to hire people at the time. And so we were going to set up secundments. And I said, you know, this would be a great opportunity to turn it into 
a program to promote diversity and to provide opportunities for diverse associates from law firms. So I, you know, it really happened very quickly. The law, I went to three law firms, they all agreed, and they are each offering their associates different benefits for participating. So they, you know, they either ranges from participation in leadership development programs, origination credit for matters, but it's all designed so that the associates, when they return to the firm after this secondment, they're, they have the opportunity to get on their partnership path faster and with more, more of the indicia that they need when they get to that time when they're considered a partner. So, so we went to three firms. We had four secundees. Three of them were part-time. One was full-time. And, you know, it was really meant to give the secundees an opportunity to see what, how we work in-house, translate what they do with their law firm to be able to serve their clients better in the future. You know, what is the mind of the in-house counsel? What is the mind of the business client? You know, what is, what language do they hear our clients using and how they could then serve their clients, you know, the attorneys in-house with work product to serve those business clients. And it's fantastic experience. There's nothing, I think it's actually transformative when, especially as a more junior lawyer, when you've gone straight to a law firm, you spend a few years there, you haven't actually sat in the seat of or walked in the shoes of your clients doing that even for a short three or six month period i think it's transformative about the way then you look at things when you go back in back into the law firm side have you seen any of that yet have you, has the program managed to gone through the enough time so that you've had someone come in and then go back to the law firm and then help as an external lawyer yeah they have it's only been about a month that people have gone back so we we have some some of the end dates they all started about the same time but then the end dates are staggered and we just had some new ones come on so we're cycling through the second cohort but yeah i think that's one of the things that i want to follow up with people see how they're doing you know but we've had the opportunity where we've now created relationships and i you know i i spoke with one of the attorneys in my group this morning and said you know hey you know i think we're going to be busy early next year let's call that secundee and say hey can you reserve some time on your calendar for you know when we're going to send you these projects even just doing that, of course, you've had the time with them in-house, built rapport, built a relationship, and that's who you're thinking about now when they're going back to law firms. Tell me a little bit about your relationship and your team's relationship with external law firms. What do you look for? What are some of the things you'd like law firms to do more of? And perhaps what would you like them to do less of? I went to the law firm when I became GC and I was speaking with outside counsel and I said, you know, I really want to be value add to the company. So if you think of something where you think it would be unique positioning for legal, you know, there's a competitive advantage to some, some legal pathway that we could take, you know, please come pitch me the idea and let me, let me consider it. So that, I mean, I'd really like to, you know, have more of that, not, not just for me to call up the phone. Is that the kind of over the horizon stuff, which I think is the, the, the most significant kind of value add. If you've got your external advisors, whether law firms, whatever, whatever they m- might be, but if they were able to look over the horizon and so that you can take a proactive approach in relation to future, whatever it is, challenges, issues, opportunities, that is enormously valuable for any organisation. Yeah, I mean, if there's coalition building that needs to happen, you know, if, they, if they're, once they're in, you know, we're in life sciences. So once they're in this space, you know, or even if it's not this space, if it's just a general corporate matter, or, you know, if there's a regulatory comments or something like that, where they, you know, maybe we're not catching every, you know, proposed reg that's open for comments, and they think it would be relevant to us, you know, let me know. And anything they should stop doing? Any pet hates? Any, any, anything that makes you cringe? 
from external advisors? I mean, I, I, I don't know that I'd say it makes me cringe, but I think, you know, really just understanding sort of what it is, you know, we're, we, you know, when we want something quick, I don't want a memo, you know, and, you know, and, but part of that's on us is to communicate. That seems to be the default issue, which does cause you know, a bit of cringing when you get the 10 page memo and you look back and go, well, I actually just wanted a, a quick phone call would have been good. What about a bit more broadly than in the legal industry? Anything that, in terms of challenges, what do you see looking out again over the horizon? What are the kind of challenges that you see more broadly, whether it's in-house or external firms or just in relation to the legal industry? What are some of the challenges that you you think about? Well, I, I mean, I, I guess I'll go back to the talent. You know, we're you know recruiting diverse talent, having diverse talent. I mean, it's. And, I, and I'm not just, it's not just, you know, flavor of the month. We work in a very complicated industry. It's a complicated profession. There's no straightforward questions. I mean, it, you know, there's, it's so multifaceted and dynamic that you need diverse talent. You need diverse experiences and opinions to be able to provide the best legal services. So having that talent, having that pipeline, you know, I, my secondment program is dealing with people who have already gone to law school, but we need to make sure that diverse talent is being law school as a possibility, you know, looking at undergrads and the high school students and saying, this is a career path for you and making that happen because otherwise we're just fighting over the same talent. And then I just think that the current market is law firms have gotten very smart about keeping their talent now. This year has been an incredible arms race in salary. And now I'm seeing in the trades that they're getting smart about bonuses at the end of the year. So whereas people used to want to leave firms to come in house it's much harder to, to recruit. Is that sustainable? I mean, I think of how long does that last for? How For how long do associates at law firms continue to getting, you know, bonuses and, and salary increases? It, it doesn't really feel like a long-term sustainable strategy. It might be. I might be wrong. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, right, hats off to them. Those, those first-year associates are making incredible money when they don't really have any experience. But I don't know how firms back away from it. Especially when they're all, in a sense, they're competing for the same talent. Anything that people should stop doing in the legal industry more broadly? It's more start doing, I think. I'd like people to start really looking at incorporating legal design thinking in what they're doing. I think a lot of, you know, I experience it when people come to work here and they're kind of surprised, you know, at how collaborative we are. And I think, wow, how come you didn't experience this at your prior job? You know, but for, for departments and GCs to think about what is it, what is the pathway of your internal client to get to you? Are you making it easy for people to come in and know who they need to go to and how to get their question addressed? And are there things that you can make more automated where they don't have to interact with a human and they can just keep going? You know, get an answer and, and keep going. And it's a fantastic exercise to run through to actually put the customer at the center of everything that you do and to work out, to break down the barriers or the blockers that gets your customer, however that's defined, the answers to the questions they need to know or to get help them get their job done. And really thinking about putting yourself in their shoes, taking yourself through the path they have to get to and, and asking yourself, to, well, it, it, does every one of those steps, are every one of those steps necessary? Do they need a human intervention? Can they be automated? Can we just remove them all together? That kind of thinking is only you know, relatively recent. It's certainly relatively recent in law. It's existed for a long time in almost everything else that's customer-centric 
trying to break down the barriers and making sure that the customer is getting exactly what it needs as quickly as possible with with the least amount of friction. Exactly. And I, I think I think there's some people out there, you know, getting started with it, sort of being, you know, the key opinion leaders in that area. But I think it's I think it's gonna be moving forward. Yeah. And you know, I think it's it pays benefits. You know that that once you have somebody have a good experience with legal affairs, then then they they come back. It only helps us do our job to sort of be there at the inception and help the projects stay within the guardrails and and get done faster. I think that's right because unless you've actually gone through that process, the default thinking is, well, this is how it's done, and then it's it's just accepted. These are the steps. Let's say, but unless you've actually gone through the process to deliberately trying to remove or smooth out those steps, then it, it, it's not. You're thinking you, you just don't think that way. But if you do it once or twice, then it's then you're asking yourself the question: Are each of those steps necessary? So, and that's an easy way to be a lawyer. Honestly, is just to say, well, this is the process. You know, and, you know, here's your here's your SOP or here's your you know business plan. This is how it is, and not to critically think about it. And it's a much harder, time-consuming thing to really think about it. Moving beyond just law, I know you've got some other interests, of course, too, and uh, the voluntary work that you do. Certainly, you're you're on the board of directors of the Alliance of Aging Research, and I, I know you also volunteer at the All Hands and Hearts. Tell me a little bit about that part of your life, any personal mission that you have there. Yeah, well, I, I joined the board of the Alliance, I guess, about two and a half years ago. And they are an organization that promotes research on the topic of aging. And, you know, having, you know, gone through my parents selling their house, moving to a continuing care community, we just recently moved my mother-in-law from her house into a senior community. You know, it's, as my, as my husband says, father time is undefeated. So, you know, we are all going to experience aging and in, especially in a company that focuses on life science and clinical research, you know, it's important to be dealing with patient populations in your studies who, you know, represent the general population. And so, you know, looking for not just advances targeted towards the aged, but, you know, including them in solutions. It's funny, Karen, I've always wondered, uh, certainly going through experience personally with, you know, aging parents and um, my mother had dementia for a number of years before passing away. So little time, energy and money is being invested in aging, yet it takes up, it's such an important part of I think the kind of society we want to be in I mean just th- think think about someone's life and the contribution they made and then towards the end of their life not actually having invested the time energy resources to make sure that end of life period is as comfortable and as nurturing and avoiding all of the loneliness that sometimes comes out. It, it's always struck me why we haven't invested, I think across the globe, actually. Uh, I'm looking at, you know, particularly with an Australian lens, but it, it has always struck me that why we haven't invested much more than, um, than we certainly have. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts around that, but it, um, it's always struck me as very strange. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think that even the spending on healthcare that is, is disproportionate to, you know, everything else. But, I mean, I think it's obviously becoming more of a focus, more prominent. There's some interesting research being done. I think, you know, I read a couple of years ago in England that they actually have a minister of loneliness. I did. Yeah. No, I, I, I read the same thing actually. And there was a couple, there's a couple of interesting podcasts on loneliness too, <laughs> but certainly loneliness and, and aging, you know, often go. Karen, a couple of questions I'm going to finish off with and a couple of my favorite questions. What's the hardest thing you've done in your life, personal or professional, that you're willing to share with us? I don't know. I, I, law school was pretty hard. 
you know, it's, it's a grueling experience. I don't know. I mean, I don't think that's the best example, but. Well, you've got two boys in their 20s, a successful, incredibly successful career. Tell me about that. And that's not a walk in the park, Karen, let's face it. <laughs> no, but I was pretty fortunate. You know, my, they, you know, I've got good kids. They're self-motivated, you know, and, and they've, long, you know, one has launched his professional career this year and one is going to graduate next year. And he's really uh, dedicated and, and driving hard to, to get what he wants. But And, you know, honestly, during COVID, I had it for people with kids. I had it easiest. They came home from college and just couldn't get on. You know, I hats off to all those parents who had little kids and had to help them with school. And, you know, that just. And, and my kids, are, I think, similar ATOs, Karen. And this is my favorite time, I have to say. When the kids are through school, they're basically through university, they're starting to launch their own lives and careers. There are different things you worry about now, but it's such, you know, they're adults now. It's such a fantastic time. It's it's my favourite. But I've always said that. As the kids have been growing up, I've said, oh, when they're five, oh, this is my favourite. Or when they're 10, oh, this is my favourite. But right now, this is my absolute favourite time. You know, young adult kids starting off in their careers and lives is, it's a real privilege, actually, to have. Yeah, I agree. It's really, uh, you know, you, you sort of see the, you reap the rewards of, you know, all the years that you've been. Last question, advice that you would give to your 25-year-old self, probably your kids too because they're, they're, they're not too far off that age. What's the advice that you would give? I would say don't be afraid to ask for what you want. I think there were a lot of times where I either overthought something or you know, just didn't come out and ask for what I wanted. When, you know, what's the worst that could happen? People would say no. You know, I think that there's, you know, from small things to big things, you know, just just being your own advocate and not waiting for people to give you an opportunity. I mean, certainly there, there were definitely people in my life who gave me opportunities and, and influence and I try to do the same, but just take your own, chart your own path and, you know, don't be afraid to ask. Yeah, I love that. And that it is... Again, easy to say, sometimes hard to do, but it's actually really simple. It's just having current and being af- not afraid. If it, if the answer is a no, fine. You're still who you are. Nothing's happened. You certainly and you'll carve a different. You'll find a different way or carve a different path or whatever it might be. But sometimes we're afraid to hear no when in fact no might be the best answer we could have got because as I said, you find another opportunity or you find another path. Karen Galley, it's been fantastic speaking to you. Thank you for for your time. I've had an absolute blast. Oh, I did too. Thank you, Jim. Fantastic. Bye-bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T, We'd love to hear from you.